This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. My name is Phil Shea. I am writing for makeaskilljack.com, and you can find more writing by me at hittingajack.com. Steve? My name is Steve Rose, and you can find more about me at steverosephd.com, where I write about mental health and addiction. Welcome to the Concept Podcast. Welcome. Today we're going to talk about memes, which a lot of people, when I talk about this, they don't really follow what I'm talking about, or they actually argue with me that my definition that I'm working off of here, the academic definition of memes is wrong. So Steve, what, what do you think the average perception of a meme is? Oh, those pictures that you find on internet forums that go viral. I think that's what people are thinking about. Yeah. Like little shareable and easily consumable images or screenshots or whatever it is. But before I give actually a definition here, I'm going to have to do it a little bit differently and build up to it because it's really related very much to genes. So the term meme actually comes from my meme, which is M-I-M-E-M-E, which is a Greek word. But Richard Dawkins is the one that coined the term meme, and he wanted a one-syllable word that was similar to gene. This is actually back in, I think, the 70s that he came up with this. Did you know that memes were that old? No, I usually think of it as kind of an internet thing, but wow. Yeah, so Dawkins kind of breaks down the way these things work as replicators, and I guess the other thing he calls them is, can't remember the word at the moment, I can't find it in my notes, but we'll get to it, I'm sure at some point. But replicators like genes, genes are the replicators that drive transmission vehicle, something along those lines. I can't remember the term again, but he says that they have to have three main facets. So one is that they must be valued. So people must want them. They have to be a higher standard than previous ones and or they use fewer resources than the previous version of it. They must be capable of being replicated and they must be intangible. So when we talk about genes or memes, they have to be an intangible thing that is the precursor to the physical things we're talking about. So like a gene, for instance, the gene is the DNA, the information at the core of all of our cells that tells the body how to produce new things, right? Right, right, yeah. And so it's not the tangible thing, it's like the precursor to it. Yeah, it's the blueprints or the instructions. I guess if you want to see those as like the genes, the double helix as being physical, sure, but like generally we can't see or interact with those on a daily basis. Everything else is generally derived from the genes. So the difference then I guess is between genes and memes. A gene can be defined, I guess, loosely and again, we're not biologists, this is out of our field, but it's a very interesting aspect and I've studied a bit about genetics with the overlap with psychology, but a gene is the basic physical functional unit of hereditary. Genes make up DNA, of course. Memes, however, are the information version of this. It's a basic informational or cultural unit. So memes are made up of just intangible information, like cultural DNA. Right, right. Any sort of technology, any sort of idea or speech or song or anything that is not inherited at birth that we pick up outside through information can be considered a meme. So I can give you some examples to help clarify that if it helps. Yeah. All right. Examples that Richard Dawkins gives are tunes, ideas, catchphrases, clothing fashions, ways of making pots or building arches. Essentially, a meme propagates through meme pools by leaping from brain to brain. So like a gene continuing to reproduce through sperms and eggs, memes actually reproduce by jumping from mind to mind. Essentially, they live inside of our brains. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty much cultural ideas that 
just get passed on through kind of nurture rather than nature. Yeah, I guess because anything that's inherited through nature would be genetic because whatever you're born with is what you had through DNA alone. But yeah, so one of the things I think he said that, okay, I'm going to be pulling a lot from two different books. One is Richard Dawkins, The Selfish Gene. He has a chapter dedicated to memes. And then the other one is Richard Koch's 80-20 rule, where he talks about basically applying physical sciences to, well, actually all science to business specifically. And that's where he talks about memes because it's the more useful side for business. So they have to have these traits as well. Okay, I basically kind of going to repeat a little bit, but I find it expands a bit more. Coke expands a bit more than Dawkins on this point for some reason, even though Dawkins goes way more in depth, generally speaking. So genes and memes, replicators, they reproduce, they vary, they adapt to the situation. They incorporate themselves in robust vehicles, which Dawkins calls survival machines. That's the word I was looking for earlier. They grow in ever more complexity, so they continue to stack on what's worked and continue to try new things. They flow through time. So if you want to consider it like a river which flows geographically, memes and genes, replicators flow through time. Time is the medium that they try to survive through. Then its environment is other technologies in the region where it's competing. So like genes, genes are competing with other organisms around. So we have this animal and that animal that are both animal A and animal B. They're both trying to eat the same resource. They will come to fit different small categories in the environment called niches that they can then exploit more optimally for their own benefit and the animal that is better at doing that will outcompete the other one. Similarly, ideals would do the same thing. If one idea is better for the result that it's going for, or it's actually just more catchy, then it will continue to exist. You following still? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a form of Darwinism here, where it's like the better thing survives and replicates. And I mean, what are the conditions that define better? Maybe that's the situation it's in, whatever's more adaptive for that situation, the context. <laughs> yeah, and you're exactly right that it sounds like Darwinism, but I wanted to pull out something that really stuck out when I was reading Koch's book, was that he quotes a detractor from the theory whose name was, get this, Dr. Stephen Rose. Yes, I remember that when reading the 80-20 rule. It's like, Stephen Rose says, I'm like, wait a minute, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. So he denounces the selfish gene as ultra-Darwinism and genetic reductionism, but that's just a funny little side bit there. But back to what I was saying before, there's also mounting evidence that humans are not the only ones that create memes, that other animals also learn by watching others' behavior and picking up technology or techniques from other animals like chimps, for instance, using, I think, sticks to fish out termites from termite mounds. That is something that was spread between the animals. So it's not just us that do it. It's just that we are obviously much more advanced in this way, right? So it's actually argued that memes are alive just like genes are. Do you have a reaction to this thought? Uh, I don't necessarily think so. But I see it as a metaphor, like a metaphorical truth, maybe. No, no, they're saying literally. It's literally alive in the same way. I don't believe that. Okay. Then there's a quote from a guy, I don't know if it's NK or MK, but it's NK Humphrey, let's say. Neely summed it up. He was quoted in Dawkins' book, and I'm just going to read his quote here. Quote, memes should be regarded as living structures, not just metaphorically, but technically. When you plant a fertile meme in my mind, you literally parasitize my brain, turning it into a vehicle for the meme's propagation, in just the way that a virus may parasitize the genetic mechanism of a host cell. And this isn't just a way of talking. The meme for, say, belief in life after death is actually realized physically millions of times over and over as a structure in the nervous system of individual people all over the world. End quote. OMG. Oh, you win. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, actually, when reading that, I, I realized that some people might point to the fact that viruses are in this kind of gray area where they're not quite considered alive and not quite considered not alive. I think I looked into that recently, like a few weeks ago, and the idea is in flux. They've argued that it's not alive. They've argued that it's alive. They've argued that it's a different category, but memes seem to act similarly. And like religions, for instance, if everyone stops believing in it, then it suddenly ceases to exist, right? Like it's basically just a historical artifact. It's not a living thing anymore. And that's kind of like you need to have for genes, the genetic evidence of those genes may exist in say trace amounts. If you were to scrape some skin cells off of something, but if every animal is dead, then it's likewise dead. It needs to have a vehicle to continue to help propagate it. Yeah. 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 What's it called? A survival. Oh, survival machines. A survival machine. Yes. So the idea will not propagate if it doesn't have humans as their survival machines. Yes. So are they actually living? Are ideas actually living? I like the way you explained it there, but also I could say like a brick wall has a real impact on my brain. doesn't mean it's alive. Oh, but do you not recall? Okay. Long ago and like episode 12 or something, we talked about nomological networks, about how we could one day come across a bad idea that takes root and makes us basically kill ourselves. Is that not just as real, if not more real? Right, cults, yeah. Well, not even just cults. It could just be like any idea like that just really grips you. Yeah, and it makes it real, like the brick wall is real, but it doesn't necessarily make it alive. Well, the brick wall is not alive either, so what's your point? No, that I would say these things are real and have real impacts that can be like physical, not just on the idea level. It can actually change our brains and then change what we do, actually. But that doesn't mean that the actual idea itself is living, but very real nonetheless. Mm, I think it is living because they do tend to continue to grow and evolve and seek to continue to exist. Certain ideas continue to exist over time. Like, actually, he goes on a whole tangent about God and how there's proof of God's existence, which he talks about how different ideas kind of clump together. Because again, it's the meme pool that they're operating within and competing within. So if they can find similar memes that can help each other. So they become meme complexes, kind of like a multi-celled organism. These are multi-meme organisms. <laughs> they can help to reproduce. So the example he gave was how God has recurred throughout history, somehow keeps coming up, and it's been continued to be propagated through people telling stories about it and through the spoken and written word by making great music, great art. But people clearly have some resonance with that, that it keeps sticking around. So it clearly has some level of appeal to the way our brains are structured. And one of the facets that has clumped on to the idea of this almighty power is the idea of eternal damnation and hellfire. <laughs> Those things together work in a cyclical fashion that reinforces them because then if God exists, then you have to do what he wants or else you go to hell. And so you are more likely to believe. And he goes on this whole tangent about faith not requiring evidence, but it's like a lot of these things, including cults, they don't want you to think too much about them. They fight to continue to exist. And the ideas or memes that do have a built-in mechanism that help them to continue to exist are more likely to persist. So like religions wanting blind faith and not wanting you to question too deeply, that would actually be seen as a strength for the meme because those that actually adhere to that won't see through any of the flaws that could exist. Right. Yeah. I guess that explains kind of the origins of early religions. Like all religions start as cults, using the word cult in a kind of more sociological, yeah. neutral Cult has sense. multiple definitions. The colloquial way is that like crazy people, but the more research-based one. Yeah. And I guess the, the function of every religion starting as a cult and Christianity started as, you can call it the Jesus cult. The reason, and this is a kind of, uh, again, a sociological, sociology of religion approach to it, but it requires that 
kind of strength in the early stages to get past this fragile evolutionary point where it can easily be wiped out in the beginning stages of a religion because it's a vast minority of people are believing it. So in order to become part of a dominant culture in an established kind of religion, you have to have that level of solidarity so that it doesn't just kind of fall apart and people are kind of not really committed to it. Yes. And the more you have people critically thinking, the more they may come to different conclusions, which would be a weakness in terms of memes, but a strength in terms of the species. However, I guess we're kind of doing both. Like the, <laughs> you brought the idea of doubting Thomas, like the whole how Thomas doubted Jesus, or I can't remember, I think it was Jesus he doubted. No, he, he doubted that Jesus was arisen, I believe. And he doubted like three times. And the moral of the story was to not to, not to admire Thomas for having critical thinking faculties, but for looking for evidence, we are supposed to condemn him in that it's reinforcing blind faith. But yeah, that's actually a strength in the origin of these sorts of ideas because we don't really have any factual claims that support these beliefs. That's kind of the point of faith, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so where do we go from here? I mean, I could also talk about another example, a more tangible example of how memes progress, because a lot of geneticists don't want to say that memes evolve on their own sake. They want to believe that memes evolve because they bestow greater survivability to genes. So their stance is that a meme is only propagated when it helps us to reproduce or to survive long enough to reproduce. But Dawkins actually fights that. He doesn't think that we need to have any sort of benefit, genetically speaking, from memes. We just need to have it be more catchy in our brain, more adept at seeding itself into our mind. Because again, once we believe something or once something makes sense to us, we can't help but be compelled to believe that and the effects that it has on our thinking. So that's why we want those nomological networks. Just a refresher on that is idea networks that can help defend against bad ideas that sound or feel true, but are not representative of actual reality. So the example he gives of how memes can evolve is all Lang Syne. Okay, you know the New Year song? The what? The the New Year song. You know that song? Oh, right. Yeah, they do play that song, don't they? Yeah, they do every year. So that song, it has lyrics to it that a lot of people, I guess, don't know. It's called Auld Lang Syne. A-U-L-D-L-A-N-G-S-Y-N-E. It's old English, I guess. But the way most people learn that is they hear the song, they hear it sung. Some people, I guess, in school, but majority of us don't study the written music. We just hear it. Right. Right. And maybe hearing it unconsciously, because now that you say, I'm like, oh, yeah, that song is the New Year's song. (laughs) I knew I'd have to kind of hum it for this, because every time I bring it up, people are like, which song? So, yeah, everyone knows that song, at least in the Western half of the world. But the original lyrics are for all Lang Syne. So for some reason, over time, it has been misrepeated as for the sake of Auld Lang Syne. The sake of was kind of inserted in there. And the way it's explained is that it's not that it's a better idea. It's an evolution on the original because the original was for Auld Lang Syne, which everyone would sing. But if you have 10 people singing for Auld Lang Syne and one person singing for the sake of Auld Lang Syne, the S and the K are very prominent. And when singing, you're actually supposed to kind of tamp those down, right? Because they'll really stand out. And by some person singing for the sake of Auld Lang Syne, sake sticks out very, very strongly compared to any other singer. So that's the one that will be heard by anybody that's not familiar enough with the song or they're just learning it. So then they'll copy that particular version because it actually is the one they hear most prominently. 
right? Hmm. All right. Okay. And so they hear that and the idea of that wording spreads and it becomes more of the norm. Right. I think for genetics, they said that if something has a 1% advantage within, I don't remember how many generations, it'll be completely dominant. I want to say like 100 generations or 20 generations. It was not too many, but if it was 1% better, we'll outperform the rest and we'll crowd it out entirely. So for now, everyone who's not familiar with the song will sing for the sake of all things Zion, or at least they're familiar with the newer form of it because sake is in terms of memes, it's a stronger meme because it's more likely to be picked up. Right. Got it. Yeah. And so this is the evolution of culture, ideas, ways of doing things, which is all part of culture anyway. And it seems relevant. And did you want to get into practical stuff or... Did you want to save that? I don't know. We can just spitball. Like if you have anything that you want to think about in Coke's book, he talks a lot about business. And one of the points that he really emphasizes that I found really interesting was that if we look at memes like jeans or anything along those lines, because he, he tries to make something called business jeans, business jeans, he admits is basically a subset of a meme. It's just a business meme. But for some reason he wanted to make it jeans because most people think when they hear memes, they think of those joke things. But he talks about how it's not actually important. Objective time, objective time in terms of evolution doesn't matter very much. It's the time it takes to replicate. So if say I am making new products every week and you're making new products every six months, chances are that I will far outstrip you in terms of the advancement of my product. You could argue that's too short of a time frame to improve it. But basically because I have to keep reiterating and keep improving on the previous model and taking the feedback of that, it will be a kind of compound interest. It's going to be a Matthew effect where the rich get richer. I'm going to keep getting more advanced and more advanced at a faster rate. So your six month thing might be decent, but because you've only reiterated once, that is much worse in terms of your improvements. Do you follow? Yeah. So more iteration equals better products and iteration means pretty much just trial and error in a sense. It's almost exposing it to, I guess, comparable to evolutionary pressure and it kind of allows it to evolve faster with that pressure put on it. Yeah. I mean, just like insects, right? Like insects evolve faster because they have shorter lifespans. They reproduce more quickly. So the tests on what is fitting the environment and what isn't will happen much more rapidly. So like we talked previously about the moths that were white or gray on birch bark, which is white with black flex near a coal mine during the turn of the revolution, industrial revolution in Britain, most of the lighter colored ones died off where the darker colored ones ended up becoming more prominent because they actually fit in with the trees better. So for them, it only took a matter of probably weeks because their reproduction cycle is so much faster. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so is that why they use fruit flies in biology research? Yeah, I believe that's one of the reasons why, because you can test different things in that way. I'm not familiar. Yeah, so this also applies to skills or ideas or anything else if you keep focusing on it. So like, let, let's take the example of a skill. And it seems obvious when you put it this way, but let's say you're playing the piano. If you learn a new song every day, then because each song is going to challenge you in a slightly different way, you're going to get better. Your skills are going to evolve. The meme in your head, I guess, is going to evolve to get better for you to actually enact those abilities on the world. And if you only learn one song and practice it forever, for like a year, you're going to get better far slower than somebody who's learning new songs daily, right? Right, yeah. So it's putting evolutionary pressure on yourself by just practicing more often. And it sounds like very much common sense. Like, yeah, you practice more often, you get better faster. Well, I'm not just saying practice because like people can think practice and like this is the difference between practice and deliberate practice. A lot of people think practice is just sitting down and playing the songs that you know already, which wouldn't make you better that much faster. But that's why I'm saying for this, for that skill, the challenge or the versions could be the songs because the songs, again, are practicing different elements of that craft. Right, and what if you put somebody in like a high pressure situation, would that 
force skill improvement. Like you put them in prison and now they like grow a bunch of muscles or something. I don't know. I don't think that follows. I think like their collection of memes would definitely change by the social environment in prison for sure. But so they actually talked about how like viruses on computers. Okay, so you don't want to say that these things are alive, but the thing is they act just like DNA. It's just, I guess you don't want to acknowledge that they might be alive because they don't have biological carbon-based life, which that's really arbitrary. That's just what we happen to have on this planet because of the circumstances that allowed us to spring forth, right? In terms of evolution, every living thing, every organic thing on the planet has the same four letters that are part of the DNA sequence, which is TCGA. It's A-C-G-T. I mean, I don't think the order matters. I know that two of them pair together consistently. But the main point is we all have those same four. And that means that logically speaking, we all sprang forth from the same life. We all have those same things. It's just a matter of how the orientation in the genes are and how many chromosomes there are that determine which species and what form you take. So it's all just like a really advanced blueprints. And similarly, memes are kind of in that way where they are also continually trying to move forward and become more robust. So for instance, a religion is a meme complex which is a set of different memes that happen to work together fairly well. And the longer something's been around, as Nassim Taleb says, age is beauty for ideas. The longer an idea has been around, chances are it's already been stripped down to its core, most infectious in terms of our brains, components, the most valuable or most, yeah, most infectious, I guess is the right word for it, because they're fighting for survival as well. And whether it's carbon, whether it's information, whether it's, I don't know, anything, it could be silicone, for instance, these things could still be alive. Because as Dawkins points out, silicone can still be alive. Yes. Yeah. Why would carbon be special? Like if you think about it, diamonds are made of carbon. If you didn't know that we were made of carbon, you wouldn't look at a diamond and say, yeah, that's definitely the basis of life. That doesn't make any sense. It could be anything. The main thing that defines life is that it replicates, basically. Silicone replicates? I'm not too familiar with the biology of this. Well, I don't know if that would be counted as biology at that point, but it doesn't yet. I'm saying that if we were to make, say, an AI that continues to self-replicate and fight to replicate and improve to adapt to the situation, that could be considered alive by the definitions that we use for carbon-based us. Yeah, artificial intelligence, okay. Yeah, but it doesn't need to be intelligent per se. It just needs to be something that replicates because like, again, emergent properties, we talked about that before. Genes are just little strands of information and then it became a single cell and then it became a multi-celled organism and then it became groups of us. So he argues that like businesses themselves are also kind of alive. Like if we see us as living organisms and we see say hive animals as single organisms because they're just all kind of one unit operating towards the same purpose, right? They're just like single cells disembodied, big enough that they could in our body they'd be single cells like a blood cell flying around giving oxygen to the different parts of our body that we need but in a beehive the bee is serving a similar function for the hive itself do you follow Mm, yeah yeah so if we see it like that like it's still one organism it's a hive organism that could be broken down to smaller components just like we can into single cells a business could be seen similarly because a business tries to self-replicate it tries to continue to exist it constantly keeps reiterating on the current conditions in which it's placed and tries to get more of what it needs to survive being capital right yeah like corporations I know there's the documentary the corporation they compare it to a living being in that way. Yeah, yeah, because it, it is. It will continue to try to live longer. And to me, I see, because I'm reading another set of books on business, but it's Good to Great or Built to Last, which are studying companies that have lasted a long time, 50 plus years, and are still great. Whereas they have a comparison company that may have kind of been in their shadow the entire time and for some reason never really excelled in the same fashion. And the difference between them seems to be that bad corporations are the ones that don't perform as well. And maybe I guess he would call them good, not great. So the good corporations 
corporations, they're more about profit seeking and they often have one idea that helps them to start. Whereas a great corporation starts with values. And in my perspective, the values are the DNA meme complex of that company. And the profits are like I've talked to you before, the blood that kind of powers or the energy that powers the pursuit of those values. Yeah. So most corporations who are very profit driven, which I mean, you have to be to some level, but to the exclusion of values, it's like more blood, more blood. We need more blood. Actually, I think I remember refining this with you on the phone. I think it's better to say like more energy because there's consistently living just to gain energy. And if you're an organism, that means fat. You're just getting bigger and bigger until you end up killing yourself in the nearish future, right? Whereas somebody who has values and purpose in life and they're using energy they're consuming to pursue those other values, they last longer. Right. I can go right into therapeutic applications of that in terms of acceptance and commitment therapy. Out of the six pillars of psychological flexibility, values is one of those core pillars. And it's not just kind of listening to, I do this because I should or because I was told, but having a deeply felt sense of why you're doing something and being meaningful and really picking that value rather than just kind of accepting things because you heard it without critical analysis. Right. That's actually segues nicely into what I have written in front of me of what the purpose of education is. What is that? I guess to me, the purpose of education is to build that idea network, that nomological network, because it allows you to know what is a good idea and what is a bad idea. The whole purpose should be to supply you with enough foundational ideas that you can think critically. Like we try to teach critical thinking, but the research seems to be fairly poor on that. I think critical thinking comes along with knowing a breadth of knowledge, knowing how things generally work. Knowing more stuff. And when I was in university, they were always like, critical thinking is the purpose of this institution. And that's what you need to gain from university. And I was always wondering, like, what is this thing they keep referring to and how do we get it? And I almost thought of it as like you get trained in critical thinking, like you take a philosophy class and you learn how to use logic or something. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, it's it's just knowing a bunch of stuff. So you have a context for new ideas. And I think that's what you're referring to. With I would add a caveat on that. What's that? The caveat would be that it's both the stuff, but also how we know that we know that stuff. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember in high school, kids talking about stuff like, oh, you don't dream in black and white or if you die in your dreams and you die in real life. And it's like, how do we know that? How do we know if somebody died in real life, whether they died in their dreams? Because you can know a lot of random facts, but it doesn't make you any better of a critical thinker. It's a knowing and knowing how you're knowing, which is an epistemic question. What is epistemology? The study of how we know. Yeah. A study of knowledge. What is knowledge? What is knowledge and how do we know it? No, I know, but I'm making sure that they know. Oh, <laughs> who's they? We're only talking to each other. Yeah, we're just having a private conversation right now, a phone call. So like the reason I came up to that was because recently I've had friends tell me that their parents have said stuff like ever since you went to university and took those X courses like political science, sociology, anything that's higher learning, you've changed and don't listen to me anymore. And they seem disappointed by this, which I don't Who says really this? understand. <laughs> parents to their children. Oh, yeah, okay. Like, now you think you know better than me, and it's like, because, like, you're going off of bad sources and clearly bad information. <laughs> like, I remember this meme I saw, and there we go back to memes, of them saying that, like, how if something is obviously true, some older generation people will be like, oh, fake news. But then if it's, like, some crazy conspiracy, like, millions are pouring over the border every second, they're like, oh my god, we have to do something. 
<laughs> right. So the study of how we know is, is just as important as kind of what we know, because you can get down some dark rabbit holes of some conspiracy routes, and you can know a lot about the flat earth theory, and yet it doesn't protect you from bad ideas. Yeah, I mean, you can know a lot about the flat earth theory, and if you don't know much about like the actual physical sciences or how they're conducted or anything like that, you could find it very compelling. <laughs> That's the thing. And the main problem is once these things take place, it's incredibly hard to uninstall bad ideas. That's why like the looking into it right now because like Fox News and their ilk are constantly indoctrinating people into like these crazier sections of society and they're trying to find like deprogramming or ways of getting them out of these kind of death cults in a way and you can't. It's very, very difficult. It's very, very unassailable and again, that's why cults and that are very difficult or like abusive relationships or whatever. It's kind of complex with the beliefs that keeps you installed there. These are very powerful memes that have taken root in their brains and they can't help but follow them. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like a, a really bad computer virus that you're just trying to scrape it out of there and pops up in different forms and you just need to kind of get a new hard drive or something. Yeah. Unfortunately, we can't. We, we can't, can't quite do I, that. I mean, just do a brain transplant. So the best solution is good prevention. And what you're talking about with nomological networks is almost like an immune system for the brain in terms of ideas. Yeah, and correct. I like that analogy because if you have a good network, and understanding of different areas of knowledge and the underpinnings of how the knowledge was formed in these areas. So you're understanding process and content and you have a, a kind of a breadth and depth around ideas. As soon as a, a bad idea comes through, your brain can easily kind of assess it and like spit it out, you know, like the immune system fighting off a, an infectious disease or it can incorporate it. And so, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Like there's something called the cowpox of doubt. So cowpox was basically, it was a way to inoculate people against smallpox, I believe. Smallpox, I think, was fairly lethal and very infectious. And they found that cowpox, which is a relative to smallpox, but not the same strain and doesn't affect humans nearly as badly. If you had exposure to that, like the milkmaidens, I think it was, then you would not be nearly as affected by smallpox. And so similarly, this is from Slate Star Codex, a uh, rationalist. I've only read a few of his things, but generally quite good. In this one, he argues that the way people think of irrationality is in obvious ways. So the examples he gives are talking about moon hoaxers or homeopathy or creationists and using those as examples of irrationality. And he's deeply against this. Can you see why? Well, vaguely, like, I mean, there's a common sense piece here. What's that? I don't know how to explain it, but as soon as you describe that list of stuff, I was just like, well, obviously. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly the problem, that it seems obvious. Because when you use examples that no one would ever be really tempted to believe unless they're already deep down that rabbit hole, just at first blush, you're not going to believe it. It tricks people like cowpox. He's saying that it's inoculating them against critical thinking. That's what he's saying. Because by believing that irrational thoughts are always obvious and not believable, like they're always going to be very apparent when bad ideas come along, irrational ideas, then you actually think that you're safe when you're not. You believe you're invulnerable to bad ideas because you think they'll always come and slap you in the face. Like, oh, I know a bad idea when I see it. That moon landing hoax, you know, a pretty crazy idea, you know, and so you kind of let your guard down and then the actual bad idea comes under the radar. Yes. And I think, especially for ideas, as soon as you think you're invulnerable to the effects of that idea, the more vulnerable you are because you have no defenses for it. Being highly narcissistic then makes you highly vulnerable. Uh, I wonder if there's a correlation between narcissism and conspiracy thinking. I wonder. Well, at least on a counseling level, there is because they're always the victim of the people in their family and, and those around them who are just 
bad people doing bad things to me and I never got the chance to show everyone my glory. I mean, in terms of the covert narcissist. So at least on an interpersonal level, that seems to be somewhat true. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is persecution complexes a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. But then that doesn't mean like gullibility more broadly, but they would think that they're smart enough to see through anything that comes along. So they might actually be more gullible to, it's like Trump, like he was more gullible to being flattered and taken advantage of after someone was flattering how smart he was. So I do wonder, yeah, the correlation between narcissism and would it be what conspiracy? Conspiracy. What would be the, the second concept there? I would just say persecution complex. I'm <laughs> not sure. But back on topic, I was going to talk about how meme viruses can be like physical viruses. Because like you said, the white blood cell thing, where if we inoculate people against thinking that bad ideas will be subtle, then they can allow them just to walk on in. And the problem with these kind of things this is why I also push back against pseudo-religious cults these days, like incels, CrossFit, veganism, NFTs. All these things I think are problematic, <laughs> to use a phrase in my mind, because we're kind of slipping back because of, like, I think postmodernism kind of planting these roots. We're kind of slipping back into magical thinking and mysticism because by being like, yeah, trust your gut, trust your feelings. Your feelings are better than reality. I don't follow facts. I follow my gut. Like that kind of thinking is terrible because it makes it so that you think that you know better. And also the more you are familiarized with these areas and the more you accept them, the more your brain registers it as psychologically safe or a safe idea that will help you probably because it's similar to things that have done well. And like psychologically or evolutionarily speaking, if you've survived exposure to something unscathed enough times, you'll see it as fine, at least not harmful and something that you can possibly use. And when it's a bad idea, like being surrounded by people who are conspiracy theorists, it will probably lead you deeply astray without you even realizing it. Right. Yeah. Okay. And I guess related to this topic, it was simply Googling as we, as you were talking there, there actually is a study, and I think you'll find this fascinating. The title of the study is National Narcissism and the Belief and Dissemination of Conspiracy Theories During the COVID-19 Pandemic, Evidence from 56 Countries. And so what they were looking at, is there a correlation between a country's level of narcissism, like as a collective narcissism, and conspiracy theories related to the pandemic? But it looks like they actually found evidence of a positive relationship between national narcissism and proneness to believe and disseminate conspiracy theories. I would say nationalism also. Like, national narcissism could just be coded as nationalism because, like, the nationalistic Americans... I mean, I don't know about the ones that are more quiet. Sorry, let's focus on the conspiracy theory people. The loudest conspiracy people are often the ones that are touting how great the country is and how the country's being ruined by these subtle, dark, hidden forces, right? Right. Conspiracy yeah. theories. Effectively. Yeah. And, and I guess so nationalism is, I guess, like narcissism on a collective level and not something that you generally want to get behind, which is different than patriotism. I want to clarify because sometimes people will confuse the two. Patriotism is more like a love of one's country, which can be very Acknowledging healthy. Acknowledging the bitter truths sometimes that exist about how things need to be fixed. Yeah. Patriotism is like a healthy relationship to your country where you love it and you want better for it and you're acknowledging the flaws. Whereas now Nationalism is almost like this blindness to the flaws. Very much narcissistic in many ways, yeah. Actually, thinking about the national level, I'm thinking about, and this is very conspiratorial sounding, but it's actually verified by CSIS, which is Canada's FBI, and other international organizations and reputable news outlets that right now there is a meme war going on with disinformation. Again, disinformation is malicious misinformation, so facts that are purposefully made wrong 
to try to mislead people or come to the wrong conclusions. And these are designed mind viruses, basically. These are the brain equivalent of computer viruses that are put forward. And often the main culprit, at least CSIS was pointing to, was Russia, Putin, and troll farms, all one package, constantly making information that goes out and misleads people in ways that can build greater division in the countries it's trying to destabilize. So that's a whole different topic, but it's very much related because we're currently very much losing because of Facebook. I point a lot to Facebook, or I guess Meta now is what they're called, because they don't really filter the information that comes through and they give like really, or at least formally, really catered service to very specific groups, like the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal where they were targeting black voters in the States to not vote, that kind of thing. Like that's what they're able to do and organizing protests and counter protests and finding any division they can and giving better PR to those groups to make them be more prominent. Like even the trucker protests right now could be influenced by that for all we know. And again, I'm going to make this distinction. I'm not saying that these people who are in these protests don't believe what they're doing. I believe they believe what they're doing is correct or accurate. They have sincerely held beliefs. It's just that these information campaigns push them to take action or push them to do stupid things or believe things are clearly false. And then they end up following their deeply held true convictions to bad outcomes. These are what are called useful idiots. I think a better term is a useful fool because they don't need to be stupid. They just need to be fooled by something. Yes. And this is not to disparage every person's opinion on COVID policy and particularly in the Canadian context right now, but kind of the more fringe elements of that movement who have kind of perhaps been influenced by this type of disinformation. Have most likely been influenced by this information. And this is not a left-right difference thing. It's all over the spectrum. It's pretty much any division that society has, they will have groups focusing on both sides of them to try to amp them up and make them more radicalized. Yeah. Yeah, this has happened with the you know, left-wing movements as well, as we saw in the different Black Lives Matter protests where there was a kind of a... Mysterious bricks appearing. Yes, those types of things. And it encouraged the looting element. So it's, it's really sowing division through ideas. And before you think that like mysterious bricks couldn't be delivered by like a foreign power, it could be delivered by literally anybody. Like if I wanted to have a pallet, like a pallet of bricks delivered to a random street corner, and I just said, just deliver it there, don't do anything, just put it there and I'll pay you like five times the price you don't think a company would do that oh it's so easy like you can be on the other side of the world and just kind of call somewhere in america that has bricks and be like oh yeah i'm looking to get some more to that like it's so easy to do over the phone yeah it wouldn't actually take that much and it could clearly escalate the violence by priming people this is another psychological effect that like by having that there it primes people to think that they should take those and use them because as soon as we see tools around us or objects around us our brain kind of classifies it as i can use that for x so long as it pays attention to the, the object that is so that's like the physical element element of, of kind of setting up destruction, but there's like the ideas level where you can have those bricks delivered to a location where you know there's going to be marches and then kind of target through Facebook ads or sponsored posts to people in that area with maybe a specific demographic who you think are likely to be protesting or involved in it in some way that kind of encourages that violence. So it's kind of an ideal sort of, level. I mean, there's that angle you're talking about, but then there was also one that I found several sources, NPR covered it as well, of the, and I talked about this, I think, in the first like three episodes of the podcast, of the protest and the counter protest, both were led and organized by Russian trolls, essentially. Like, they were not even in American soil. It was for a mosque, an anti-Muslim protest, I think, in Texas. And then they had the counter-anti-Muslim protest happening. Both were organized by Russian influence. So, like, it's not just pushing people to organize. They're organizing them themselves and saying, we're going to show up here. We're going to do this this day. Come prepared. And they get a bunch of people that they found that are similar-minded. And so instead of even needing to be there, they just push them to show up, and then some will. Yeah, so you organize the protest and the counter-protest in the same area 
area and then you deliver some bricks. (laughs) Yeah, you could do that. It wouldn't be difficult. (laughs) There are tools to do that that are quite easy to access. Yes. Yeah. So I have a couple other things to say before we finish off here. That was actually something I didn't have written down. Coke argues about business genes. And for him, I just want to give some examples of what he classifies as business memes. There are technically memes. He says like the knowledge of how to acquire wealth, the way to train proper businesses, business ideas, mechanics of business workings, how things actually work, like different forms, different files, different practices that are normalized. And for him, a business meme is the basic smallest piece of useful economic information. That's how he's classifying it. So for him, again, it's about reiterating as quickly as possible and finding ways that it can actually help. So in accordance with those books I was talking about, Good to Great and Built to Last, those companies like, say, IBM, their main core value, or at least their main thing that they're able to produce wasn't the products they were making. It was great managers, great people that were good at working with people. So as long as they had great managers, it didn't matter what else they were doing because they were constantly able to use the business knowledge and the ability to motivate people and the right people to do those things that they would excel regardless of what they focused on so long as they focused. So it's interesting to me that like different machines that have lasted a long time have had different core aspects like that where the real goal of the business was not to make profit. It was to do these other things that ended up making profits. Like 3M was another one. They focused almost exclusively, or no, I think it was Merck one of the two, they focused exclusively on just pursuing research for the sake of research. And they said that the marketing department wasn't even allowed to talk to the scientists to try to influence it. Just basically find good research areas, keep researching, work with other organizations, share research, just be open. And the only time marketing can actually step in is once it is reaching human trials. So just completely trying to divorce it from the corrupting force of the market. And that I found to be very interesting. Is Merck related to kind of fuel? I actually am not sure. I only know about them through this book. I heard on the news actually uh, a few days ago that they are investing in alternative fuels for environmentalist purposes. And yeah. I'm just going to look them up quickly. It's M-E-R-C-K. It looks like Merck is an American multinational pharmaceutical company headquartered in New Jersey. Okay. I'm thinking of Merck Fuel. It's a different one. Okay. It might be a subsidiary of theirs, but they've, they've done a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff on research. So they're huge because they were great at just pursuing research for the sake of research. I know a lot of people will balk at that. Another weird thing that I found was they found that this is unrelated to memes, but well, sort of when it comes to attracting top talent to a company, salaries are useful to attract talent and retain talent, but it's terrible for motivation. So the argument that you need to pay CEOs more to have them more motivated to make them perform better is not accurate. The only reason they would need to be there is if you want to keep them there, I guess, to a certain degree. But a lot of the time, a lot of these great companies were able to keep people around because of their core values. They believed in the mission that they were doing. They took money off the table so that people didn't have to be concerned about making their ends meet or living the lifestyle they wanted. Instead, they gave them what they needed and then they got them on board with the actual mission that the company was going towards. Like the whole question of what would you do if you have enough money and you don't have to work anymore? Like what kind of work would you do? Because you, I mean, you don't have to sit around on the beach. So that's what these companies tapped into, finding a purpose, a why for people to continue to work. Right. Yeah. Then when people have a why, they can figure out any how. Oh, Ooh. that was uh, Nietzsche. Nietzsche. Bomb drop. <laughs> So in closing, I actually have a few takeaway lessons here. I don't know if we dropped them all, but for businesses, I guess I have some. So there was actually a Russian researcher. I think his name was Gauza. He was experimenting with different microbes in Petri dishes. So he put two different types of microbes in the same container with limited food. They both did fine. Okay. 
Then he tried putting two of the same microbe in a container with the limited food. How do you think that went? Did it grow stronger to adapt? <laughs> no, they both died. Oh. Because they end up fighting because they have the same strengths, the same weaknesses, and they need the same stuff. So in between markets or in between you and a competitor, you and another business or whoever you're competing with in any way, if you're too similar, you'll end up destroying each other because you have the same strengths and weaknesses. And so this is the whole blue ocean strategy. A red ocean in business terms is where it has a bunch of competitors already fighting over like just the scraps. They're just trying to fight to get a little bit more, like 1% more. What's an example of that? Like what's an example of that type of business? Yeah, red ocean strategy would be like salt where it's like how do you differentiate salt like they already thought the market was tapped when it was just salt and then they segmented it further down to sea salt and kosher salt and pink himalayan salt and so those have happened and that really cut up the market even further but then like now it's like what kind of extra benefits can you get from salt i can't imagine i have no idea so that's a red ocean like if you try to break into the salt industry it's going to be quite difficult yeah it's like so if you think you're an entrepreneur and you're like i have an idea i'm going to come out with a new kind of salt probably not advisable <laughs> yeah probably not but then like a blue ocean would be like if you focus on what your customers actually want or you're able to add like incredible value in a way that disrupts the market usually the standard players like this is what i find whenever somebody says like that's a great idea somebody's already definitely thought of it and it hasn't worked or it's not existing because it failed no that's often not the case the old big boys tend to not want to try to change they like to keep things exactly as it is because it's been working so far but they do that for too long until often it's their own demise or their second fiddle so for an example of that would be yellowtail wine that one actually was a pretty interesting case where originally wine was well still is it's a kind of highbrow thing where it's for refined tastes and it often you have to actually acquire the taste of it and it's kind of expensive and it's always kind of hoity-toity upper level kind of fancy stuff right and so then yellowtail came along and they decided we're going to make a wine for the common person. You don't need to know that much about wine. You've only got to make one of two choices, I think, originally. And they made it so it was more fruity, more appealing to the average palate. Okay. They also made it so that it was made with less time invested. So they, I think, aged it less. So the tannins were different. I don't remember the science behind it. But basically, they could produce wine faster in shorter turnaround times from growing the grapes and fermenting and all that stuff. So they didn't have to age it, which meant they could sell more faster without having to pay for warehousing and all the aging process stuff. So while the old players were balking at this being like, ah, oh, that's just like wine for the rabble, wine for just like low palates. Unfortunately for them, the average person does not have a very refined wine palette. And so Yellowtail took off and ended up far out competing with them. And because they'd already gotten a lot of market share of people who formerly didn't drink wine or formerly drank expensive wine, but didn't really like it, they just took a huge portion of the market. Right, because nobody else was doing that. Everyone else was like, ooh, fancy. And then they kind of shifted into a different untapped, created a market, really. Yeah, yeah. So the core point of this is if you're too similar to your competitors, you're just competing on something simple like price or a package. Try to find some way that makes it completely different. Another one that in terms of strategy is if you're in a position where your niche can be invaded by another person or a group that would want to take that space and you can't do the same back to them, then you're in a very dangerous spot and you should try to differentiate as quickly as possible. Alternatively, if your competition is in a spot that you can invade easily and they can't do it back to you, then you should definitely start taking some of their market share. This is very, again, it's like business is, again, it's kind of like a bunch of animals. It's survival of the fittest in that way where different systems, even like a tiny advantage, again, 1% advantage in the genetic pool will end up expanding out to the rest of the pool over time because it's enough to give you that edge. So Yellowtail is very popular. I mean, it obviously worked in, in their case. They're everywhere. They make a great Shiraz, by the way, yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I would actually try them knowing more about them now. The final point for businesses is that, again, it's about, or even individuals, it's about cycle times. It's not about objective time. So the faster you can implement the next version, the next stage, like this is why technology advances so quickly during wartime, because they want to get it out as quickly as possible. It needs to be done now so we can get it out on the battlefield. That drives things forward very quickly. Actually, business is basically, as I see it, in its better form, again, with the great businesses, not the good ones, it is cultural evolution, technological evolution, because it's putting a lot of pressure to force things to make things better for people to use new things that have never been seen or thought of before. And if you ask somebody what they want, that's actually not a great test because people don't generally know what they want until something is put in front of them. And the example of that was Ford with the horses. He said, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Uh, That's so true. Yeah. So he went the blue ocean route and created a whole new market. Yes. But the thing is, this is all we can talk about business the next time. But generally speaking, you have to stick to your core values of continuing to push forward. If you rest on your laurels or you try to avoid competition or ignore competition, that is your death or at least your slow death by a thousand cuts because competition is what keeps you pushing forward and you should be thankful for having strict competition because it forces you to be your best. That's why rivals are good. I mean, that's why Blockbuster should have been Netflix, but they're not. Yeah, exactly. Or why Zoom took over instead of Skype. They had it big. They're like, you know, we don't need to do anything. They didn't. And now they're just in the past and just been of history. So clunky. Yeah. So the final point, I guess, is that if you seek immortality, genes is not the way to go. Memes are the way to go. And this sounds ridiculous when you think about like jokes and culture, but memes can survive without varying too greatly between transmissions. So for instance, If you have a kid, your kid is only 50% you, okay, genetically speaking. And then when they have a kid, that kid is only a quarter you. And then the next one is 12.5% and so on and so forth. Until after only maybe five generations, it's a negligible proportion of your own genes still there. They might look sort of like you, but genetically speaking, they might as well be a stranger. So... If you really want to have a lasting impact, according to these books, I think it was Coke that promoted this one, seek immortality through ideas, through contributions to culture, through making something that is able to stick in people's minds forever, or at least a long time. That's useful, ideally, because that will continue to exist and it will only minorly change over maybe decades. Wow. You really pull it through with these conclusions. No, I haven't said that in a little while, but I really like that because your genes over time are, are slowly kind of eroding away with each generation, but memes can live forever. I mean, look at the Jesus meme. Like the Jesus meme is still here 2,000 years later going pretty strong. Faltering a bit, but Faltering yeah, they're bit, still around. Yeah, the Jesus meme is there despite the gene kind of dying off and so that's interesting well the thing is that it may not be dying off because it could be just in a, a time where the situation is not ideal for it because like a lot of genes and this includes business memes and all that stuff will instead of adapting they'll sit back and hope the environment will change back to a favorable position and with religions clearly they've survived a lot of stuff like the enlightenment happened they're still around and then we got right now information age and they're still around but less but they did come back a number of times so it probably will again that's all i got for today these are amazing concepts I highly recommend those books. If you like this, please rate us. Give us some negative reviews with five stars. That'd be great. And thanks five for star coming out. Reviews. Yes. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Have you heard of dank memes?